Happy Trinity Sunday to you. This is Dr. Chuck McGathy from Madison's First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina, and I am presenting to you a message today from the Epistle to the Romans written by the Apostle Paul. This is from chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Before I get started, I just want to remind you that how grateful we are for you tuning in to this podcast. Please feel free to share it with others. I hope it's helpful to you. Uh, we uh, have uh, gone quite a ways on our journey through a pandemic and uh, finding a new normal and hope that uh, your days are filled with blessing, uh, that we, uh, of course, have problems in our world. But our good news is that Jesus is with us in those problems. And I hope that you get that from this podcast. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be uh, speaking to you from the fifth chapter of Romans as Paul begins his reasoning with the people who are beloved and cared for just like you are. So uh, before I go any further, let me remind you that our web address is www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.weebly.com. So if you'll go there, you can connect with us. You can give to us if you want to. Or you can find out more about who we are, but always consider yourself part of this Christian family. Now from the New Revised Standard Version, the updated edition uh, is Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he has, that has been given to us. Before I begin, I want you all to know that not only the people who are my in-person congregation, but also people who are hearing me through the internet. I want you all to know that you are loved by God. God loves you. Furthermore, God is here with us, and he is real. His divine presence is touching every soul right now. Even though you may feel beset on every side, you may feel like the ancient Hebrew people often did, overwhelmed by pervasive evil in actual exile or in the bonds of some other form of slavery. You may even be asking every single day, where is God? If you ever feel any or all of that, then you are in good company and you are in the right place. The right place. You could be also wondering if the way to knowing God presented by those supposedly in the know really is the way God is at all. 
For a growing number, going to church may even seem like the most unlikely place to find, truly find God. I want you to know I get that. The church has often failed in its mission to express the grace of God. I think we know this much together. Our experience with a less than gracious church is not unique. Those with an eye on history will no doubt note the many ways the Church of Jesus Christ has lost its way. Throughout its history, people have called themselves Christians, have failed to be very Christ-like over and over again, not quite following in the footsteps of its founder. And it's in its past, there are far too many examples of a power-grabbing institutional church using the mechanics of financial and political power while abandoning ethics and truth-telling. The church, not the entire church, but enough of the church to cause us concern, has at times been against science, against human learning, and by refusing to acknowledge her sin even against history itself. On the other side of that equation is the very corruption of the gospel or good news message of Jesus. That corruption has resulted in systemic bigotry and racism and inquisitions and even in warring crusades. And just so you know, none of that, not one bit of that, is what Jesus taught. No one is more troubled by this than those who genuinely try to follow in the way of Jesus. I have though just offered up enough reasons that any decent, reasonable, and basically good human being would be able to justify staying away from church. And yet here you are in church. I hope, though, that you, like me, are unsatisfied with the failed church and believe in a better church. I hope you can imagine what it would be like if people would truly follow in the way of Jesus I am like you. I hope for a renewed church to emerge from the ashes of its own sin and genuinely reclaim the words of Jesus who told his disciples to love others, forgiving their sins even as they have been forgiven. That is God's grace and it has always been around. I'm going to talk about that grace with you today. To do this, I'm going to consider the words of one who struggled with religion. He was very familiar with a way of understanding God that was full of bad news. But something happened to Saul of Tarsus. Something changed him from a frightened and vengeful religionist into a follower of Jesus and a new way of love, forgiveness, and hope. He also went by the name Paul. And this is something he wanted his readers to know about God's abundant grace. He wrote, and now I'm reading from a version called The Message. By entering through faith into what God has always wanted to do for us, set us right with him, make us fit for him, we have it all together with God because of our master, Jesus. And that's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his door to us. We find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praise. There's more to come. 
We continue to shout our praise even when we're hemmed in with troubles because we know how troubles can develop passionate patience in us and how that patience in turn forges the tempered steel of virtue, keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. In alert expectancy such as this, we're never left feeling shortchanged. Quite the contrary. We can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. I had a vivid dream a week ago before I began working on this message for Sunday. In the dream, I saw myself in conversation with a well-known and influential televangelist. I had actually met him once, long ago, but in my dream, it was more than that. In my dream, we were friends. In fact, we were close enough friends so that we could share with one another our honest opinions. We reflected and shared together about the ministries we lead. My experience has been with local congregations and intimate groups of people, what he would consider small, though I think of them as more of a normal size. He, on the other hand, has a following of millions. His words have swayed more people in a single day than mine have over a lifetime of gospel ministry. As the dream continued, as we compared notes, I could tell he was proud of the degree of his success. When he turned to me to affirm his lifetime achievement, I shared with my friend that I could not, and what is more, I would not change places with him. In fact, I added it was really he who should be envious of me. When he looked back at me in shock, I added, I am standing in God's grace. Standing in God's grace is what Paul found was worth everything. The religion he had formerly embraced was bent on dominance, forcing others to comply with morality codes and strict interpretations. God's love for all people was lost and replaced by a violent faith that tried to defend God, but in the end denied his power. It was while he was on a mission for God that he met God. You have heard about a come-to-Jesus meeting? Well, that's what happened to him. He realized he had lost his way. God was not against people. God loved people. His way, the way of following Jesus, is a way of love, forgiveness, and hope. It is what we call grace. And so Paul, who had lost his way, changed and wrote the words we focus on today. The church that has lost its way is the church that has exchanged its call to share God's grace for other things. There are frequent stories about churches and church leaders that should cause us great concern. Just like in the days Paul preached an institutional religion imposed an oppressive burden on people, this failed religion had replaced God's grace with three deadly forms moralism, exclusionism, and nationalism. Each of these deny God's grace in part or altogether. In that kind of religion, God becomes an angry ogre ready to wipe out the planet to punish the sinful who have ruined everything. Using fear and eternal punishment as threats, the graceless manipulate people to join their fold. And in the very words of Jesus, make them twice the sons and daughters of hell than they are themselves. Moralism 
is not the same as being a good person intent on doing right. Jesus described the moralist when he opined, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. The picture he paints was directed toward the religious leaders of his day, who imposed their rules, interpreted their way upon the people. Yet in so doing, they really forgot what was most important. They, for example, became fanatical about keeping ritually pure, but willingly neglected their neighbor in need. Jesus told a parable about that. He told them the truth, and it really bothered them. In fact, it even made them want to kill him. They felt it was their godly duty to silence the man who had told a story about a good Samaritan. Can you think of any ways this looks like our religious world today? A religion that speaks of excluding is not the religion of Jesus. In fact, Jesus' big problem with the religion of his day was that he was constantly including those they had excluded. Now listen to me carefully now, because a lot of folks get this part of Jesus' message totally backward. Read the Gospels carefully. Read them thoughtfully, and please notice the G that Jesus included the excluded. He included women. In the Greco-Roman and Jewish world of the first century, women were excluded from the same religious experience as men, and yet women were prominently included in the way of following Jesus. The first Christian sermon, He is risen, was delivered not by a man, but a woman. The lead pastor in the Corinthian church was a woman named Priscilla. And as the church of Jesus is established on Pentecost Sunday, we are reminded that both your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Prophecy means preaching. The way of following Jesus includes and respects women. Jesus also included the powerless. Among the powerless were the sick, the scandalized, and children. Jesus, in opposition to the religious practice of his day, welcomed people to God's table of grace. He did not condemn the sick. Once, when a man born blind appealed to Jesus for help, all his disciples wanted to know was why he was blind. Was it his fault, or was it his parents' fault? They excluded, but Jesus included him. On another occasion, Jesus was criticized for befriending a prostitute and even eating with those they regarded as sinners. They excluded, but Jesus included. Children were not to trouble a teacher, but when Jesus taught, they wanted to join in. When the experts on God saw this happening, they tried to stop it, but Jesus stopped them. He said, allow the little ones to come to me, for of such is the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus included who they excluded. Jesus also included the sexually marginalized. Though the language is different, the meaning is unmistakable. Jesus spoke of eunuchs who had been born incapable of a heterosexual life as also included in God's kingdom. Needless to say, the routine religious practice was to exclude eunuchs, but Jesus did not do that. He taught that they too should be included. What got Jesus into the hottest of hot water, though, was when he included that indicated that God loved even Gentiles. You see, the dominant religious idea of that day 
held that God did not love everyone, but loved his chosen people. They were selected by God. They were exceptional. They were blessed. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were unchosen, unexceptional, and worthy of condemnation. And, of course, this justified every bigotry, every prejudice, and every exclusion. Jesus, however, did not buy into this kind of thinking. He had read very carefully the scriptures, and he came to the exact opposite conclusion. When he preached a sermon in his hometown of Nazareth, he told them that God loves and includes the ones they considered unchosen. Of course, they turned on him and even tried to kill him for saying that God included who they excluded. Jesus even included the self-justifying religious people. He included them, that is, if they could see their own deep need. Visited at night by a devoutly religious man named Nicodemus, Jesus told him, For God so loved the entire world that he gave his Son. In that great statement of inclusion is the heart of Christ following faith. Christianity ought to be about building bridges, not erecting walls, making more room at the table of grace, not shutting the door to the hungry. Again, I ask you, can we learn the nature of genuine Christianity from the one who bears the name? Paul, as he rethought the religion of his youth, had to deal with one more challenge. That challenge was the insidious sin of nationalism. To love one's country is a good thing, but to elevate your country into the best in all things is nationalism, and it was a matter with which Paul had to wrestle. Perhaps another name for nationalism could be tribalism. Tribalism says, I stick with my tribe no matter what. And of course, that was exactly what he did as a young man. He fought tooth and nail to defend God, but what he really did was defend his tribe, his people, his nation. And it is important to know the difference. He had set out on a mission to persecute, but then Jesus confronted him. He asked, why are you doing this to me? Those words changed his thinking. Paul could see the difference between loving your country or your tribe in a healthy or an unhealthy way. And Paul became a great includer. He went to the marginalized, the forgotten, the excluded. He followed Jesus. What would happen if the church today would act more like Paul instead of Saul? Paul tells us in his words to the church in Rome, he writes, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Through him we have been allowed to approach by faith into grace, into this grace in which we stand. And we celebrate the hope of the glory of God. Now here is the thing about this sentence. Paul could not and would not have written those words had he not rejected his earlier religious thinking. But Jesus got a hold of him. Jesus changed him. Jesus taught him grace. And in that grace, the lover of God for everyone, Paul urged us all to stand. There are many things wrong with religion. But God does not give up on us. He is constantly calling to human hearts to love him and to love one another. Grace opens the door for a new way of thinking, a way of true goodness, a way of inclusion, a way that considers everyone a child of God, no matter where they are from or what color their skin or what culture they represent. The most important question is personal. Are you standing in God's grace?
Those words written by Paul so long ago still have meaning. So let me ask you once again, are you counting on God's grace? Are you offering God's grace to others? If so, then you are following in the way of Jesus. Let us pray. Jesus, help us to be your genuine church. The people not only called after your name, but who also aim to follow in your footprints. Give us love deep and real for others. Remove from us our false pride and give us hearts of love for the excluded, the shamed, the marginalized, and sick. For we, Lord, are just like them. We, too, are in the same boat, and we know that will be hard. But we do not quit. We won't give up. We stand in your grace. Amen.